everyone. This is Robert Lloyd with you again on the Future Cities podcast. As promised, I've got a follow-up for you on our previous episode about some of the work the Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network, also known as your XSRN, a multidisciplinary project made up of researchers from a lot of different institutions all over the U.S., as well as in Mexico and Chile, some of the work that we do. Last time, we talked about how the Scenarios Working Group of URXSRN works with various kinds of practitioners on the ground in our cities of interest, people working in city government, in non-governmental organizations, in environmental and infrastructure management, and other roles, works with them to produce scenarios about the futures of these cities. Futures which are more ecologically sustainable, more resilient to shocks like natural and human-made disasters, and more socially equitable. In the UREX SRN model, these scenarios are formed first from a survey of the city practitioners about the most concerning challenges to their cities from extreme events, and then through workshop activities in which the practitioners co-produce visions of their city's futures and how those visions might be realized. But the process doesn't stop there. Those scenarios give researchers in the URX SRN valuable data about how residents are thinking about city futures. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the ways that data is valuable, how it's analyzed, and what can be done with it, not only to deepen our understanding, but to try to make those visions a reality. So joining me today are some more of the top researchers from the URX SRN Scenarios Working Group. Now we're recording this in early 2021, and once again, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the dispersed geography of the group, we're all meeting via teleconference, a situation that's become a lot more familiar to us all over the past year. So we're going to go around my screen and have everyone introduce themselves and tell a little of their background. So if you would, folks, please tell us who you are, what institution you're with, and your research interests. And we will start in the upper left-hand corner of my screen with Marta. Oh, hi, so my name is Marta Verbes and I'm an assistant professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. And previously I was um, in the scenarios working group with the URXSRN. And my research interests are around resilience and scenarios, futures, and all of that taken from a participatory action research uh, perspective. Super, thanks, Marta, happy to have you. And moving clockwise, it's Timon. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Timon McPherson. I am an associate professor of urban ecology at the New School and direct the Urban Systems Lab there and was fortunate to uh, come in early into the YearX project, which I know Nancy will tell you more about. And a lot of my research interests happened in this project, including looking at um, climate risk, equity dimensions in terms of disproportionate impacts, and really trying to think about future scenarios, both from a uh, sort of challenge perspective, what are communities facing and likely to face in the future, but also how we can work with communities to understand their own visions for what a more resilient a more adapted future might look like, which is obviously what we're talking about today. Great, thanks. And moving on, we've got another Robert. Hello everyone, I'm Robert Hobbins. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Urban Studies Institute at Georgia State University. I've also, like Timon, been involved with the UREX project for quite a while. Since 2016, I joined as a graduate fellow um, and worked two years uh, as, a, as a fellow in the network. Uh, and that really, I was a PhD student at Arizona State University at the time. Um, and the UREX largely shaped my conceptual framing of urban problems and the way I look at these issues and basically molded me as a scholar focusing on urban sustainability and resilience. I call myself uh, urban sustainability scientist, but the approaches that I take are usually about knowledge. So I'm kind of a knowledge architect trying to build more equitable and inclusive uh, ways of designing uh, new knowledge systems to achieve urban resilience and largely focus on knowledge co-production, uh, which is why we're here today talking about scenarios. But then I also look at you know, the capacities that we need for city stakeholders to actually build out those visions 
And my work largely focuses down in Puerto Rico, also in South Florida and Atlanta. Glad to be here. Great, happy to have you too. And last, but certainly not least, Nancy. Hi, I'm Nancy Grimm. I'm a Regents Professor at Arizona State University. I've been here over 40 years. I am trained as an ecosystem scientist and originally I worked on watershed and river biogeochemistry, which I still do. But about 24 years ago, I took a turn to urban ecosystems and that uh, brought me much more into collaborations with social scientists and engineers and even designers. So I'm the co-director of the Urex SRN, the Urban Resilience to Extremes SRN, uh, which actually I suppose you could say also spawned this uh, podcast, right? Um, through Absolutely. its support of, of graduate students who run it. So in the Urex SRN, we, we wanted to create a network of collaborating interdisciplinary scientists and practitioners from diverse cities who could work together to promote design and implement urban infrastructure. So writ large, a big, a big word, that's resilient in the face of future extreme events that we expect to become more frequent and more severe. That also provides ecosystem services, the benefits that people receive from ecosystems and improve social well-being. And and is also uh, aware of and exploits new technologies um, in ways, and, and all of these things in ways that benefit all segments of urban populations. So we started off that, you know, that's a big task, right? And we started off that task with grandiose ideas about what we could do in the nine continental US and Latin American cities that make up the network. We were gonna do a lot of stuff um, and we have done a lot of stuff, uh, but we really coalesced after about a year and a half on the co-production of future scenarios as the core of what we do. And this was because when we sort of stepped back and we said, what are the things that we as a project really, really want um, to make sure we do? It was because that co-production of future scenarios hits the ideas of co-production with the users of the information we produce. It hits the benefits of a SETS approach, which is social, ecological, technological systems, integrates a concern for social equity, uses nature-based solutions or this idea of green infrastructure, and also um, integrates learning from our Latin American and Caribbean cities. So those things were, were things we thought were really important and that all of those come together in these, um, in these future scenarios. So I'm still learning about what creating scenarios is all about from my excellent younger colleagues that you see that are here on this podcast and in the previous one. And so I may have less to say in this podcast than they do, but I thought it would be useful to put this work into context in the larger context of the Urex SRN. Just a little bit more about me. I'm also co-directing with Timen, an international network of networks called Nature-Based Solutions for Urban Resilience in the Anthropocene, which is a direct outgrowth of uh, the Urex SRN. It's called Natura. And as an ecologist, I'm drawn to solutions for climate change adaptation that use nature, or in other words, nature-based solutions. And we find that in many of our cities, the scenarios also often favor nature-based solutions, particularly for adaptation to urban flooding and extreme heat. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there and, and, and let's go on with, the, with some <laughs> questions. Well, thanks, Nancy. All that was so valuable. We appreciate you uh, giving us background and at the same time, bringing us up to speed on what's happening now. That's fantastic. So, in the previous episode, we spent a lot of time talking about how scenarios are produced. Uh, and for listeners who haven't been involved in that process, you know, to hear us talk as scientists about working with governance practitioners and so forth, it sounds like it could be kind of a dry process. But really, the discussions and the activities that we do in those workshops, they're very lively. Sometimes, you know, they even get a little bit heated with people throwing ideas back and forth and talking about how viable or non-viable they are. But out of that come some really fantastic ideas, really creative, uh, 
really hopeful on the parts of these people who live in the cities in which we're working with and trying to formulate these, these future scenarios. But that given the case, you know, some of the ideas we've seen come out of these workshops are even a little bit sci-fi. It would be easy for one to wonder, you know, how can you work with that as scientific data? So I'm curious to hear your take and your experiences on how the scenarios produced at the workshops actually do represent data that can be analyzed scientifically and used practically. Simon, do you want to start? Okay, well, I'll say how I use, uh, how we use some of that data. So I think that one of the key things that scenarios do is that they represent alternative futures, Mm -hmm. right? So really what the scenario should outline is a pathway into the future. And if, if you do so well, then you have a way of comparing the implications of going down different pathways, right? So the trick I think is how do you um, find ways of comparing between the different visions? Because as you say, the visions are sometimes drastically different and they're really addressing almost different audiences. And so one of the ways that we uh, have developed in, in the US uh, SRN, uh, we develop um, an assessment that looks for uh, resilience, equity, and sustainability mechanisms in the scenario visions. So we have identified 40 principles from the resilience literature, from the um, justice uh, literature, and from the sustainable development goals. And what we do is we look at each of the visions and we assess it to what degree it shows that there's mechanisms for say distributional justice, or there's mechanisms to diversify, which is a way of building resilience. And so the idea is not that one vision has arrived, but that it allows you to compare uh, across the visions and then it allows you to go back and I think one of the big things about scenarios is that it's an iterative process. You can then go back and say, hey, your vision scores really high on mechanisms of building diversity, not so high on participatory mechanisms. What what do we think, Um, you know, where should we go next? And so uh, that's one of the ways in which we use the data in in a research or in a scientific way. And you should know that the the title of that is the Resilience, Equity, and Sustainability Qualitative Assessment, otherwise known affectionately as Rescue. And we also have quantitative assessments. So, you know, those those kinds of things that we can do with the data that are more quantitative than than that particular thing. And Timon should talk about those. Well, you know, I think a rescue on its own is kind of an amazing way to start to think about how you, as Marta was saying, can compare and contrast competing or complementary visions um, that community members are, are producing. I, I think it's worth sort of stating, though, that the data are incredibly valuable for multiple you know, reasons. But one is because the way in which we've done this work and I know the previous podcast um, addressed this some, is bringing such diverse stakeholders to the table to discuss Mm -hmm. and imagine their futures together. So when you're hearing from community members, community activists, you know, nonprofit organizational leaders, government um, officials, academics, all in a setting, that data is really kind of incredible as in some ways, the first of its kind. And so, you know, what we're talking about in terms of what's it useful for, well, I think it's useful for a myriad of things. And to some extent, we may only be scratching the surface. Um, Nancy's describing, you know, quantitative ways of assessing that certainly some of the visions that people come up with lend themselves to a kind of quantitative analysis. What I mean is that when people say, look, we need to be thinking about coastal flood resilience in a coastal zone. And, you know, some of those I don't, I don't, I wouldn't call them sci-fi. I would call them, you know, people grounded in reality saying we're going to have to move away from the coast in some of these cases. That Mm -hmm. is a challenge. It's not something you can do very quickly in the short term, but it does lend itself to spatial analysis because in some ways it's a spatial solution, right? Um, There's other kind of aspects of things that we saw where groups were thinking about restoring ecosystems or restoring forests or wetlands as part of a larger strategy that might've been about 
food security, or it might have been about, um, you know, fundamental reconnection of humans to nature in and, in and outside um, the city context. And that also can lend itself to some kinds of spatial analysis. And so, you know, to your question, Robert, I think the, the data are valuable for multiple reasons, and to some extent, because they're unique. Um, mm -hmm. They're really sort of incredible, uh, rich narratives and stories and maps and timelines and, you know, as Marta said, visions that diverse people have. And we have come up with, I think, some creative ways to think about how we can compare and contrast them in qualitative and quantitative ways. I guess I can jump in and augment what has been said about uh, the scientific analyses that can be done with the scenario, scenario workshop products. Um, so my, my role in the UREX has largely been on, on the transitions and implementation working group uh, that collaborates very closely uh, and, and you know, supports the work of the scenarios working group and the scenarios process. But what we're really focused on is how do we actually put this amazing knowledge, rich knowledge that practitioners and stakeholder, urban stakeholders have uh, put together into practice. So how do we actually implement these ideas and strategies and visions on the ground? And so from a scientific point of view, you know, obviously this is gonna get you know, peer reviewed, be in, pu in published articles and slowly make it percolate its way down into use, right? The traditional way of utilizing scientific knowledge. But you know, for cities like San Juan that was devastated during Hurricane Maria in 2017, we don't have time to wait, you know, for that percolation to happen. Like we need to do something now. We need some projects on the ground now. We need to put that knowledge to use mm -hmm. now. As Tisha mentioned in the in part one, uh, in that workshop, you know, we worked on both adaptive strategies and transformative strategies. So, you know, as Michael Crow says, it's not just like we need to just keep on doing the same things we result we always do and expect that we're gonna have better results later. We need to, knowledge innovation. We need to change our processes. We need to transform the way we do things to, to not have the same problems. To, you know, if we're going to rebuild Puerto Rico, let's think, rethink the way that we're rebuilding. Let's not rebuild it in the same way that left the island vulnerable to begin with, right? So we need those transformative visions uh, that we've created in the scenario workshops to help guide that process. But, you know, the actual raw data is not first of all, you need to make it accessible. You know, you need to get it out there. You need to basically be your own media company to like promote these visions, right? Mm -hmm. They're not just putting them out there and never promoting them. It's not going to, you know, get to where it needs to go. So what we were doing is trying to think about what, how can we get this out there in an accessible manner and also in a, in a very easy to understand and engaging format. And so some of us have been dabbling with something called story maps as, as a potential platform for getting these uh, data information out. And the Urban Systems Lab, Timens Lab also did some work on trying to put these into a, a very interactive platform as well to mm -hmm. convey the results. So we have these two, di two different platforms where we've tried to mobilize this knowledge uh, with you know, geographic information systems, with mapping. Timens work is like 3D, and you talk about after I'm done maybe, about like 3D visualizations of you know, social, ecological, and technological dimensions of these visions. Uh, but the story maps for the ArcGIS story maps are a very immersive feel to them. So they include a lot of different data information from the, uh, the scenario work. So we have the visions, you know, it's storytelling. So the visions themselves have a narrative format where you actually tell what does a day in the life of a person or a group of people look like in 2080. So that, that caters very well to the story type of, a platform where you can tell what it looks, tell what it is. You just literally <laughs> write it out how the stakeholders describe those features. But then you also add some new elements. Like we had some designers, graphic artists come in and do renderings. So we've we went around Tisha Munoz Erickson and I and others went around Puerto Rico and took a bunch of pictures. And then we, we took those pictures and built new renderings of like, okay, well, here's a coastline that's really eroded. Well, here's what the, the same exact spot might look like in you know, the vision of coastal flooding, resilient to coastal flooding. Here's what it might look like. And you can go and like slide back and forth in the slider and see, you know, before and after photos. We have a lot of really cool images of, of that from around the city, from, you know, vacant lots to making them very, you know, green and uh, com like complete streets with bike lanes and, uh, you know, community gardens and all of those sort of things. So you can actually visualize what these things will look like. And again, in a dynamic way, because the users are interacting with it. 
But then we've also got the strategies. So we developed, you know, scores of different strategies for each of these solutions. Uh, we were able to like pull up images that demonstrate what the strategies are, give them descriptions, and also give resources of other places within Puerto Rico that have tried it as an experiment or other places around the world that are doing that. So for example, Puerto Rican stakeholders talked about creating like water ferries to help get around in like the San Juan Bay. And uh, there is a little bit of that in Puerto Rico. So we gave some examples of what's already going on, but then like Amsterdam is really famous for these sort of things. And they even have like water taxis where tourists can go and mm -hmm. rent them and they're like autonomous. There's not even anyone there, like a tour guide. You just like jump on them and tell where you want to go and then it goes to your place. It's like we gave examples like this, right? And there's videos, there's, they can link to them and read about them. So that's stakeholders that might be able to have some say in, de in designing these systems can see these examples from other parts of the world that also align with the vision, specific vision that San Juan stakeholders created and put them to action. And so that, that goes to the action aspect of it. We also included resources, both financial and knowledge resources. So like for, for the urban flooding scenario, you can go in and you can see, well, here's you know, 20 different people or organizations that are working on urban flooding type issues. That would be you know, a, a source of knowledge or, or potential collaborators on implementing some of the visions. And then also financial resources. We did a lot of digging around from our networks to see you know, where different funding might come from. You know, There's a lot of, for Puerto Rico in particular, the rebuilding after the hurricane, there's a lot of money going into the, into the uh, island, but it's not really that transparent. A lot of people don't know where they can access that money. So it's kind of also giving those practical solutions of how they can you know, get funding to implement some of these ideas that necessarily weren't discussed in the scenario workshops, but we add those extra elements to try to mobilize this knowledge to make, again, making it more accessible. And you know, as an example, right now, we're working with a group called uh, Alianza or the Alliance for the Rio Piedras Watershed. And you know, that's an alliance of government agencies, community organizations, design firms, and others, and interested academics like me that are uh, working with community members to think about what can you know, San Juan watershed resilience look like in an integrative water management strategy rather than what's currently going on with like the Army Corps. Uh, they're doing this massive channelization project of the Rio Piedras River, which is kind of the typical, as, it, as Michael Crow was saying, the business as usual approach. We've always gone in like the LA River, right? And just channelize it. Think about the Terminator movie with this giant channelized empty river. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one perspective and has been done and is being done in many, many cities. But let's not think about the same exact thing that we've done over and over and over. Let's imagine a different, more integrative approach that, you know, welcomes the nature based solutions that Nancy and Timon were mentioning, you know, into it. And, and our visions help bring those that to life. What does that actually look like in the future? And so we give an alternative, as Marta brought up at the beginning, an alternative vision. Uh, compared to this massive billion-dollar, you know, project that the Army Corps is going to be doing in San Juan, which, you know, is probably the largest infrastructure project that the area will see. So we give it an alternative vision, and our alliance is is working towards trying to promote that vision uh, as a way of how do we practically bring this knowledge into action. Oh, that's and great! I'm hoping that uh, maybe you can share the link, you know, as as shout out to the story map <laughs> in the additional. Uh, description. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say the story maps are beautiful. They're, they're really very nice. And, and I think Robert, Robert went through several of the outcomes that have resulted from those in San Juan, but we have also used various other alternative kinds of expression, including story maps and renderings and so forth for our other cities. And we found through a survey of practitioners that one of the things they wanted the most was visualizations of these futures. They really wanted to be able to see in different ways than sort of a boring standard graph, you know, what does the future actually look like under these different plausible scenarios? So we're still playing around with that. We're still doing some of that. We've taken the data uh, for example, renderings on strategies and, and, and built further workshops on those that Marta can talk about. But we also, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the things maybe we're going to get into sort of the more quantitative stuff later, but one of the things that's I think is very useful and interesting that comes out of this with a lot of post-processing. So it's not 
it's not an easy task. Is yeah. the maps that that Timon's team generates, and they're in themselves beautiful because they show you what are the different configurations of all of these kinds of ideas of strategies and so forth, and where could they go? And those maps represent tremendous possibility for input to further models to actually see what's the consequence of pulling, you know, of putting uh, a lot of green infrastructure along the coast in San Juan or in New York for future coastal flooding mm -hmm. um, under, under some hydrologic model that could be applied to those land cover models. So they're very, very useful. But anyway, I was just going to say that um, a variety of these kinds of um, approaches are being tried in different areas. And we're all sort of trying to follow the lead of what Robert has done with the story maps in um, San Juan, because they really are beautiful. Yeah, definitely. So I will absolutely include a link in the text accompanying the episodes so that listeners can go and check those out. Because uh, it's not only instructive, but it's also uh, a fun experience, but uh, an exciting one to look at the potential changes through a medium, an interactive dynamic medium like that. So one thing that I think has come out of uh, what many of you have just said is that uh, there's a, a lot of rhetoric outside academia, but also within it about how it can be an ivory tower, that we work on our ideas and... Uh, they are very specialized and sometimes very esoteric and the public at large may not have access to them. But it sounds like there's a, a real strong aspect of this work, which is about sending that message back to the public in general and also the practitioners that we've already been working with up to this point. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think Robert was getting to that point a lot, which is, you know, you kind of started off asking a bit about the data, how we can use it. And Nancy's describing a number of different ways we've done analysis. Mark has, you know, led the development of new analytical approaches, but it's a lot about communication, right? Um, and developing tools that are useful. So I, I kind of feel like to some extent, Robert gave a really nice overview of the value and importance of turning from maybe the way we've been trained to analyze this and write it up in a particular way and provide it to an academic audience, but when you're working closely with communities is to realize we have to be responsive to the needs of the local communities and those differ and those are sometimes unexpected or even unpredictable. And it, if anything, that may be have been one of the you know, largest challenges and opportunities I think that we've all had within the UREX project is to work with designers, you know, people who've got sort of excellent communication skills, develop our own communication skills as part of that process as a way of being responsive to communities saying, we've articulated our vision, as you were saying, Nancy, you know, give it back to us in a way that's rendered and, and, and described and visualized in a way that we can then make it useful by either helping articulate that to the rest of their constituents within, you know, uh, a community they represent or use that for ad advocacy work uh, with current on the ground planning that may be happening, right? Um, and I, I think that's, to me, one of the sort of key things I've been learning and also where, I think you mentioned this early on, Nancy, where new data and tools have a utility because in a lot of cases we're realizing that to meet those needs, we've got to not only learn new skills, but we've got to bring in people with those skills who can really take advantage of new forms of technology. So the story maps are one of those, the, um, the visualization after we take, to some extent, somewhat sophisticated modeling approaches to try to really quantitatively visualize those futures as they've been envisioned, but then also bring those into a format where you can interact with them, right? And so it's, it's what Nancy was saying, there's actually a lot of post-processing involved with that. There's a lot of technology, you know, in some cases, 15, 20 different softwares are being used in order to be able to build a communication product. But I think that's been one of the really exciting things. And it's, to me, this is also about how we train a next generation of interdisciplinary scientists to do great science, but to do it in a way that it has applicability and, and, and impact in the real world. And this, this does mean bringing in these tools and skills um, and getting into the communication side of things quite a bit. I think that we create a wealth of outputs because 
in each of the cities is an ongoing conversation. So you think of the scenarios as one part of that conversation and hopefully, you know, in each of the cities, the process is different. The outputs might have to be tailored. So there's no one size fits all. And I think, for instance, one of one of the things that was um, that I've enjoyed doing a lot in, in Phoenix has been to collaborate uh, on creating these renderings with a class at ASU, which is a landscape architecture, uh, landscape architecture design studio. And we basically gave to this class our future scenarios for South Phoenix. And so for now three years, the class takes our scenarios and the visions that are, and you know, the way uh, people in that workshop talked about the futures and they create renderings and they expand the ideas and, you know, and, and they really draw them out for you. And so it's been a really interesting way where we have, somewhat fed this class, then this class has fed us these beautiful renderings. And then we have been able to take those renderings back to the community and say, hey, you know, we have developed this idea further. Again, let's prioritize. And so we've done other exercises to prioritize and think of, you know, implementation and what solutions are better, um, more suitable, more transformative and and so on. So, and I think that it really is a, it's just a way of continuing these conversations and, and they all, um, in, in each city, that engagement has been different. Mm-hmm. I can follow up on what Marta mentioned about, um, you know, there's not a one size fits all product that we have. So for example, yeah. uh, in San Juan, I was uh, talking with a group called Enlace that works with low income communities along the Canyon Martin Peña, a small channel uh, that often floods. and you know, they, we were talking about the, the, the salience or the relevance of these scenarios for, for the community there. And one of their concerns was that, you know, they're more interested in like keeping a roof on their head, you know, food right now and food insecurity right now, a lot of like very urgent issues. They're not really thinking about 2080 in the long mm-hmm. term. And this is where, this is very classic stuff. Like when you look at knowledge usability, in the sustainability science literature, you know, they talk about credibility, legitimacy, and salience, where salience is the relevance of the problem for different stakeholders. So that relevance can come in, like, especially uh, for this type of work, spatial and temporal scales. So what spatial scale are you talking about? What temporal mm-hmm. scale are you talking about? And for some people, their timelines are, and also politicians are famous for this, right? Their timelines are much shorter <laughs> uh, versus something that's very long-term. So uh, those groups that are, you know, more interested in looking on long-term solutions, and not, you know, small band-aids for right now, are more interested in this type of work versus those that are, you know, more, could be, you know, social work that's geared toward helping people with their immediate needs or might not be that interested in this type of output, right? So it's, it's not a one size fits all, but there are groups like the Alianza that I mentioned that are very interested in this or the San Juan Bay Estuary program that's trying to come up with a very long-term watershed strategy for the region very interested in this type of work. Also, when you talk about credibility, when we created the story maps, we also, and we, we looked at the products, you talked about how some of these could be like very science fiction-ish, right? Like how realistic are some of the scenarios? Well, for the credibility aspect of it, like, can you actually trust these scenarios? Well, we created these story maps, but then we vetted them. So we shared these with, you know, engineers and floodplain managers and civic organization leaders, people with technical expertise on each of the different visions to get their input on the feasibility of certain strategies or certain visualizations. Because you're visualizing something, you're showing, oh, here's the San Juan Bay coastline. We're going to put some vegetation here to stop you know, flooding. Good idea. Um, but you know, in some situations and some type of different ecological structures might not be a sound approach scientifically. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what we've found for some of these strategies that were being proposed. Uh, We talked to technical experts, you know, it just wasn't viable. Some of them were not viable. So, you know, we, we did have to modify some of that based on those scientific grounds to try to improve the credibility of those visualizations that we were, you know, providing. But then we also took those back to community members and say, hey, does this actually still match with you know, the integrity of the initial vision that you had, right? So it's kind of that trade-off that we tried to do. And the third one was legitimacy. So that's something from the very beginning of this 
UX project, thinking about how do we actually go and do this work in cities uh, mm -hmm. in order to create a legitimate product. You know, we had to ensure that we had all the right stakeholders there. And that's part of, as they talked about in part one, the governance survey to get a, you know, invent kind of like an inventory of the relevant actors and understand, you know, who should be at the table and to try to make sure that they do have a space to share their perspectives. Uh, I think increases that legitimacy, but it's not perfect. And again, again, example from San Juan, I chatted with an urban planner who had come to the workshop and that person was a bit, was reflecting on their experience in the workshop, found extremely valuable, really fundamentally changed the way that person was thinking about some of the coastal erosion issues. And I think the city wanted to buy some land and then they realized that actually that land, you know, might not be so <laughs> profitable. Lots of different mm -hmm. uh, you know, implications for what they learned from the workshop to their planning practice. But in the end, the person was like, well, my boss wasn't there. My supervisor wasn't there. You know, they didn't learn that. You know, I'm going to bring these ideas back to them, but it's going to fall on deaf ears, you know, because they weren't necessarily in the workshop themselves. So it's not just the products, mm -hmm. but it's a process. It's the deepening understanding. It's all these uh, indirect outcomes of the workshop itself that can also lead to knowledge utilization but also potentially not in, the, in, the, in this particular case where, you know, the decision maker is not necessarily one that is there in the workshop could undermine some of that legitimacy in certain cases, right? It sounds like kind of a praxis process. You have made an impact with the people you're working with, even as you generate the data, which researchers Absolutely. like us are going to work with and which they, as you say, will take back to their different organizations and hopefully you know, be able to implement them. But as, as you point out, also, if someone hasn't been through that process, maybe they won't be in such a strong position, sort of cognitively, imaginatively, let alone empowered by legal means, economic means to enact them. So for anyone that's thinking about designing a scenario workshop in the future, you know, one potential thing that that person recommended was for organizations to come in teams. So like mm. two people from an organization to come together. So it's not just like one person trying to push their gender or sharing what they learn, but like teams could come and like think about how they would can change their, their practices based on what they learned there and take that back to the organizations. Yeah. That's terrific. And then also through the different avenues that we've talked about of, of getting these ideas, these future visions out to the public, to practitioners, as well as the research community. Uh, it really sounds like we're sort of multiplying the avenues through which we can do that. So, you know, even though only a, a small number of people can actually take part in the workshop, ultimately they still have the opportunity of having access to the information, the ideas, the, the more creative outputs, such as the the graphic renderings that came out of that workshop process and came out of the analysis of all the data that was produced in the workshop. I think as Marta said, it's an ongoing process. And, mm. you know, I mean, we're very interested in having our cities use the information that comes, uh, that came out of the scenarios workshop and a continuing process of talking about what do you need from these? Because we can continue to process the information. There's so much information in these. It's just unbelievable. You know, as far as academic products are concerned, those are still ongoing. And yet, you know, we also have the possibility. For example, we have a, a, a postdoc right now who's looking at some of the Phoenix scenarios, both done at the regional scale and at, the, at a small village scale, South Phoenix, that Marta mentioned. And looking at those for um, carbon mitigation, carbon dioxide mi mitigation mm -hmm. strategies. So pulling those strategies out of those uh, scenarios is going to be something that um, the city of Phoenix is really quite interested in. So which scenario does best in, in that term, even though they weren't set up for that, they're set up for these uh, dealing with extreme events or, or transformation, they're, there still is something really important there to think about in terms of decarbonizing cities. Another example is the, the use uh, or the extraction from these scenarios of ecosystem services. What kind 
of uh, nature-based solutions are being proposed? What kinds of services are they supposed to be um, delivering for populations? And, the, and that's a really exciting ongoing process right now, but I think also potentially useful for, for decision makers because instead of just sort of accepting a you know, the idea that, oh, we need to have more green infrastructure because the EPA says we do, um, instead mm-hmm. saying this gives us the information that by adopting these strategies, we may see a reduction in the exposure to extreme heat in this community, for example. Uh, and, so, and so I think that it provides a lot more useful information for decision makers. It's also advancing the science. And I think that's that's another aspect of this is, you know, we're also testing out ways to integrate a whole range of methods that builds on these scenarios, but then allows us to ask, you know, questions like you're getting at, Nancy, um, how visions, when you bring them into a qualitative or quantitative environment, can allow you to, to look at their, imp- their potential impacts, like you mentioned, decreasing heat. So, for example, this is some work we've done in Baltimore to compare and contrast the visions that were developed in Baltimore and then to say which ones of them perform best once you've already done the cellular automata, you know, landscape modeling to bring in all the spatial components of the visions. And then you have that as an input to really look at changes in, in surface temperature based on the changes in those land cover that are based on those visions or changes in stormwater absorption based on the land cover that are based on those visions and how you can start to really evaluate those. And then, you know, essentially you have the bed, the bedrock of what a lot of work around climate risk and and climate resilience is looking for, which is to test solutions. What if, right? We have all these what if scenarios and we're even investing in them without really, you know, knowing how well they might perform. And this at least gives us a starting point. It's not to say it's like the end all answer that then you know exactly what's going to happen in the future. We never will know that, but it certainly gives us a really, I think, incredible point for providing information to decision makers, like you're saying, Nancy, but also advancing the science of how we integrate tools and models to better understand, compare, and contrast alternative visions, alternative solutions, and how they're performed for different needs because we have multiple needs simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- another example that's very cool is um, one of my graduate students, Jason Sauer, is, is combining his sort of empirical work on wetlands in the city of Valdivia, Chile, with the maps of future land cover that were generated by Timon's group for Valdivia and asking using this modeling approach, how will these different configurations of land cover and different amounts of wetland loss that you see in the future change the dynamics of uh, flood absorption and and, uh, amelioration of uh, urban flooding in Valdivia. And it's really quite interesting because there's a lot of variation between the different um, scenarios that were produced there in terms of the distribution of wetlands, how much wetland loss you would actually see in the future. In all scenarios, you'll see some wetland loss because Mm -hmm. of expansion of the the city and growth of the city. But some pathways are much better than others in terms of, you know, what the future, the future role of wetlands in, in mitigating flooding. On that note, about like which pathways are more desirable, I, I think that that's really where the conversation is at. Because if you have alternative pathways, you know that there's going to be always trade-offs. And how do you start having a conversation around those trade-offs? Start having a conversation around if we were to go down this pathway and fulfill this vision, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And so I think that this is really a fascinating area in terms of what the scenarios can open up in terms of conversations around equity. In in Phoenix, we've been lucky that we had two sets of scenarios and one is done regionally and one is done at the village level. So much more smaller, it's almost like neighborhood level. And when you compare those two visions, which is a, a rare, you know, scenario work don't usually have cross-scale visions. Uh, when you compare those two visions or two sets of visions, they they have different emphases. 
there's a lot more emphasis on participatory processes and on governance and representation at the village level than there is at the regional level. And so right away, you can see how there is perhaps a misalignment on how different actors are envisioning their future that could be conflicting. And so I think that this is one of the really exciting areas about the conversations that follow the scenario process. Now, this is a great conversation, but I wanna make sure with the few minutes that we have left that we land on one of the products that has come out of the research that at least a couple of you are involved in. This new publication, Resilient Urban Futures. Now, who can tell us a little something about that? One of the editors, I think. There's two of them on this call. <laughs> yeah, that's my idea. Tyron, you, you can go right ahead. Okay. Well, I, you can describe it in different ways, but I, I think the book is a collection of the concepts, methods, and approaches, and results of the Scenario Working Group. And so I've been describing it as a bit of a primer on, you know, what we did, but to some extent, how others can take up similar approaches and, and, and learn from it, because we have spent years with very diverse perspectives and, and disciplinary um, backgrounds that cover a range of things we talked about today. You know, what does the engagement process look like? How do you really think about co-production of science fundamentally, right? What are scenarios and how do you sort of um, help to seed the ground, facilitate workshops as a process for developing visions? How do you analyze them quant quantitatively? qualitatively? How do you visualize them? What are some of the data viz techniques? And what is a vision for resilient futures in the context of um, urban futuring? So that I think is a really amazing resource. We're very excited about it chapter by chapter. And I'm already, you know, been really excited to be able to send people who are working on co-production. Oh, you got to check out the co-production chapter or are really interested in how do you do scenario development? Well, here's some really great resources on scenario development work. And Mark, I'm sure you can add to that. Well, can I just add one thing? Because I, you guys may not think of this, but um, you know, when we started doing the scenarios and actually meeting with, we we found it was important to try to explain why we thought framing in terms of social, ecological, and technological systems was important. And we had been hoping that there, you know, there was a sort of you know academic organization group within UREX that was that was called the the SETS working group. And we kept asking them for something, you know, that we could that we could present, and and so we finally just made something up, and uh, you know, we we used our own it, something that was approachable, like a one pager for um, putting on the tables when we were in the workshop, so people could look at it and say, oh, I get it, I get, it. I see what that is, and uh, and so there's a chapter on that in there too, which I think is really great. That's led by Yoan Kim who's a postdoc or graduate student and then a postdoc in uh, UX. Yeah, I, I would just add, I, I think the book has been fun because it's been such a, I mean, you have to understand that this was a process that involved over 150 practitioners and researchers all together and nine cities and five years. And so I think that the book in some ways offers a, a fairly honest vision and he's fairly candid and, and, you know, on what, what is it that we did and what worked and, and what didn't work. And so I, I think it's meant to be, it's not, it's not a manual, but, but it, it really like you could, you know, like I think like the people that we had in mind it, were practitioners, grad students that might be curious about such a process uh, of how to build uh, resilient urban futures. And, and so we're pretty happy with it. Fantastic. Well, we are at that time where we have to wrap this up. So I want to thank you all for participating in this podcast episode. It's been a great discussion. Oh, and I wish we could go on, but uh, time is not always our friend. So I will go around the screen one more time and ask you all to tell the listeners where they can contact you or find out more of their work, your website, uh, social media handle, if you have one. Well, one thing, because Robert kept bringing up the story maps and data visualization, is go to urex.net to learn mm -hmm. more about the project. 
go to urex.urbansystemslab.com to, to check out the 3D data visualization for all nine cities um, and explore and interact there. And obviously um, you can check out urbansystemslab.com for other kinds of things. And we're, I guess you want a Twitter handle, mine's at Timon McPherson, so it's too long and easy to find um, <laughs> for Twitter anyway. But this is great. I, I just want to thank you, Robert, for you know the chance to talk on this podcast. This podcast has been really amazing, and uh, I hope the, the listeners will get something out of it and contact us if you want to dig in more. Great. Thanks, Timon. Hobbins, okay, go I ahead. can go now. I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Marta. I do actually, there's a page, uh, you know, you can find me. I was wondering if I actually did have a website. And so, yes, you can find me in the School for the Future of Innovation Society at ASU. And my Twitter, which probably will be uh, my preferred way of contacting me if you actually want to know what I do, uh, is at Marta Berbes, and there's only one of me. So, and again, <laughs> thank you, Robert, for organizing this. Super. Hobbins, go ahead. It's been uh, wonderful to be back on the podcast after a few years hiatus. So thank you for inviting me to be part of it today. For my, pretty easy to find me, uh, roberthobbins.com. And you could also find the story maps there on the project page uh, or also on Twitter as well at, at Robert Hobbins. And once again, I will turn to our fearless leader, Nancy Grimm, to take us out. Well, I, I mean, it's been excellent to, to be here with, be allowed to be here with the, you know, my younger colleagues who are amazing and just totally amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, check out the YourXSRN uh, website, uh, yourxsrn.net. You can find me by Googling me and there's another Nancy Grimm, but um, it'll be clear that I'm not her. And um, my Twitter handle is doctor, at Dr. Nitrogen or at Dr. Nitrogen. So that's where you can find me. And thank you so much, Robert. This was really fun. Thank you all again. This has been great. And for our listeners, thank you for being with us. We will have something fantastic ready for you in the next episode of the Future Cities Podcast. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.